The future of streaming. It's Wednesday, September seventh, twenty twenty-two. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast, and I'm Jason Kelly. The streaming market is saturated, but still growing. The big five services are Netflix, Amazon Prime Video, Hulu, Disney Plus, and HBO Max. But there are more than 200 streaming services worldwide, and recently the viewership and growth has been shifting downstream. 85% of U.S. households have at least one video streaming subscription, and many households subscribe to five or more. So it is it is quite crowded, quite packed, but still growing, and that makes it a good a good business supposedly. And now with advertising coming into it, it should become even more profitable. This should be good for a few different components of our our preferred Nasdaq 100 stock market index, because as you'll hear later in this this episode, Netflix has decided to partner with Microsoft for its new advertising supported tier. According to Grandview Research, the streaming industry was worth sixty billion dollars last year and will grow more than twenty-one percent per year to three hundred thirty billion dollars in twenty thirty. So this is major, which I think you already knew, but it might be even more major than than you thought. Now, too many analysts talk about Netflix hemorrhaging. This is the word they love to use: hemorrhaging subscribers. But the company lost fewer than one million in the second quarter, and still counts nearly two hundred twenty-one million worldwide. So percentage-wise, that's a loss of less than half a percent, making the verb hemorrhaging hyperbolic. It's more like normal fluctuation. More important than subscriber count fluctuation was Netflix's decision to offer an ad-supported subscription tier. Up to now, as you undoubtedly know, you would pay for unlimited viewership on Netflix, and there were no commercials involved. You just log onto the service, find what you wanted to watch, and just watch all you want up to 24 hours a day. And some people seem to have hit that mark fairly frequently, especially during the pandemic. Well, now that the the subscriber count seems to have stabilized, maybe it's de- declining a little bit, but like I mentioned a minute ago, not all that much, but. But Netflix needs to keep growing. It wants to keep growing, of course. Every business does, and it's thinking that to keep revenue heading higher, ads are the way to go. And it announced this earlier in the year that it's going to have an ad-supported tier coming out early next year, and it's working quickly toward that. And it's going to succeed. It's going to make that mark on time. But beyond Netflix, ad-supported streaming is the fastest-growing segment. Now it's growing from a much smaller base than the subscription model. So always, when things start out, if if, if you go from two percent to four percent, well, that's a hundred percent growth. So always, when the numbers are small, the percentage growth goes way up. But nonetheless, that's where all of the the heat is located right now in the streaming business. The three tiers of streaming industry wide are as follows: SVOD, that's S V O D for for streaming video on demand. And that's the paid streaming without ads, the traditional Netflix model. You pay per month, all you want to watch. AVOD is what they're calling paid streaming with ads. So that would be ad-supported video on demand. So the traditional is SVOD, the new one is AVOD. And finally, there's FAST, F-A-S-T, which stands for Free Ad-Supported Streaming TV. 
Last quarter, they grew similarly, one and a half percentage points for SVOD, the traditional business model, 1.6 points for AVOD, ad supported, and 2.1 points for FAST. That's the free ad supported streaming TV. But SVOD has stabilized at around 81% U.S. household penetration over the past year, while AVOD and FAST are rising rapidly, with FAST doubling its penetration from about 10% to about 20%. So that's that faster growth at the lower end of the food chain at the moment. And I'm not even sure the lower end of the food chain is the way to, to refer to this, but that's how many people are talking about it now. I suppose because... SVOD is now considered premium luxury. You, you can pay more per month for the luxury of not seeing ads. And then as you go down this food chain, to use that term again, paid streaming with ads would be you're, you're paying a little bit, maybe seven bucks a month, half the price of the luxury seats. But you do have to sit through commercials every hour. And then fast, free ad-supported streaming TV, totally free. But you, the, the, the payment then would be a higher percentage of, of ads per hour. A higher percentage of, of hour, you know, what was it, minutes per hour devoted to ads. Uh, so, using that same metaphor of the food chain, the the fastest growth is happening at the bottom. People want free, and uh, there's not. It's not so clear yet how much conversion is happening from the 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 fully paid areas of streaming. Um, there's undoubtedly some cannibalization going on there. But it might be that they're just growing the audience, that people that would have never paid, say, 15 bucks a month for Netflix are willing to pay nothing and sit through ads just like always happened on linear TV. That's traditional broadcast TV. Well, Netflix does still dominate total viewing time share, but that's declining. Not all that much, but it is declining. According to T-Vision, an, an industry research group, Netflix commanded 20% of viewing time in August 2021 but only 18% in July 2022. YouTube stayed constant also at 18%. Hulu declined from 11% to 10%. And Amazon and Disney Plus stayed the same at about 5% and 2% respectively. A lot of attention paid to Disney, but when it comes to viewing time, they're really not all that much of an industry heavyweight yet. I'm sure that will change and you never want to count Disney out, but for the moment, they're right down there at the bottom. Now, where did that disappearing view time go? View newcomers like Paramount Plus went from 1% to 2%, so they doubled, but see what I mean about the small numbers, only from 1% to 2%. The Roku channel, something called Tubi, another one called Pluto, and others you've likely never heard of. I certainly hadn't. You might be more tuned in than I am. But these other ones farther down that food chain are nibbling away at the viewership pie. And a lot of these are that fast tier, the free ad-supported streaming TV, making, making streaming look a lot like normal TV. Makes you wonder what all the supposed progress was over the last few decades, doesn't it? The AVOD, and that was the, the ad-supported tier in the middle, right, is slated to grow the fastest now that both Netflix and Disney Plus are preparing to launch their versions of it. So the two heavyweights are going to be having ads coming, and that's going to really, really grow the, the, that ad-supported tier that's right there, right there in the middle. Netflix announced in, in July that it would partner with Microsoft, and that's a big deal, of course, because Microsoft is, is one of the biggest companies in the world, one of the biggest components of the NASDAQ 100. And Netflix is also on the NASDAQ 100, as is Amazon. You know, Disney's a heavyweight on the Dow. So th these companies are a big part of the economy. 
Uh, when, when Netflix announced in July that it would partner with Microsoft, he, here's what it said in its statement. Quote, Microsoft has the proven ability to support all of our advertising needs as we work together to build a new ad-supported offering. More important, Microsoft offered the flexibility to innovate over time on both the technology and sales side, as well as strong privacy protections for our members, end quote. Netflix will have to give up some profit margin by working with a partner. And this was one of the big discussions that happened in springtime. Is Netflix, at that time, you know, will Netflix be willing to give up profit margin um, in order to work with somebody who's more established in advertising? Or will it, will it want to forge its own way through a fairly well-established field in order to retain that margin? Well, the verdict is now in. They will partner with a heavyweight, lose some profit margin, but probably come out of the gate roaring a lot better by partnering with a, an established ad player. So I, I, I think it was a wise move personally, given that the rivals of Netflix, including Disney, have long histories of working with Madison Avenue. Um, I, I just think Microsoft is a lot higher chance of having its calls returned than the, the brand new Netflix advertising division with one phone line and a, and a kid out of college. I'm sure they wouldn't have done it that badly, but you get the point. An established Madison Avenue player was probably a good idea when Netflix was trying to figure out how to dip a toe into the ad waters. So what will that new Netflix ad-supported tier look like? When it comes out early next year, 2023, it'll probably feature disruptive traditional ads in which your programming pauses to run an ad, just like on traditional TV. So nothing all that creative there. It's a little bit disappointing that just all the new technology looks like the old technology. and People are, are really scratching their heads wondering, what was all the benefit of this supposed innovation over the last three decades? But rumor has it that Netflix wants to differentiate itself from TV with more sophisticated ads like product placements. Everybody got pretty excited about that in July, that Microsoft has apparently been working quite a lot on this. But, but it just it defies logic that this could work in two different tiers. I mean, for example, if, if, if the way this is going to work is that, that instead of pausing your programming to run a one-minute ad for a Coca-Cola, if instead of that you're watching your favorite TV drama and all the lawyers in a room, let's say it's a legal thing, and all the lawyers in a room pause and say, pass me that Coke, give me that Coke, wow, this Coke is really good, don't you love Coke? I love Coke too. And a couple problems with that. First of all, this would become pretty glaringly, glowingly, purpley obvious in a hurry. And it would turn into this kind of, you know, parlor room pastime to see which, which, which products were placed in this. You know, he drove up in a Ford truck. How much did Ford pay for that? He just bought a ticket on United. How much did United pay for that to be in there? They're drinking Coke. They're going to Starbucks. They are, et cetera, et cetera. That could become comical, not in a good way. But another problem with that approach is that they can't film two versions of every single show, one that includes these obvious product placements and one that doesn't. If they had, and if they had one A roll of, of this with all the characters drinking Coke, what are they going to do? Put a mosaic over the label and just call it cola or something with special effect? That could become even more comical in a ham-handed way. So it's not very clear that that they will be that Netflix will be able to differentiate itself too much from traditional TV. They might they're just going to have to interrupt the same way ads have always interrupted programming and maybe the way to make people less ticked off about that is to simply improve two things. The quality of the ads, the same way everybody 
well, I don't know about everybody, but a lot of people look forward to Super Bowl commercials every year. They look forward to the commercials because that's the highest quality set of commercials of the year. And they're fun. The, the ad companies do a great job with those. So improve the quality of commercials would be step one. Step two would be improve the targeting. And here's where things can get pretty darn interesting with this Microsoft partnership. Microsoft is, is very good at targeting. It has the, the Bing search engine. It, it knows a lot about its customers through the, the penetration of Windows. And it's been working on AI and, and uh, customer tracking. It has a lot of links to people through, through LinkedIn. And it, it, it knows the market quite well. And it's been working on targeting technology for a long time. Now, of course, the competitors have too. Google, uh, Disney. I mean, nobody's, nobody's not doing this. But Microsoft is good at it, and the hope is that they'll be able to better target ads to the viewership so that even when you're disrupted, you're not too upset if it's something that really does apply to your life. Um, and then, of course, it runs into privacy concerns, how much are they allowed to know about you. But that's not much different about any other type of online activity that generates revenue through advertising, and they do always want to target who's seeing those ads. We'll see. Um, one other one other aspect of the ad-supported tier on Netflix is that subscribers there will not be able to download content reviewing offline. Now, there's not a lot being said about this, but we can read between the lines. Uh, Netflix is probably going to say, we're reserving this capability as a premium feature for higher-priced plans. Fine, but the true reason is probably that when things are viewed offline, they're not as easily tracked and, and the, the target audience is not as easily understood. Because the, for advertising purposes, they want to know, where did you stop viewing this? Where did you pause? Where did you rewind to watch something again? And, of course, that's building data points in order to better target ads to your interest in the future. If you're watching things offline in an untrackable environment, they won't be able to amass that data. So I'm sure they'll market it as a premium feature for non-ad subscribers, but, but actually they need to force all ad watching subscribers to watch their content online so they can be tracked and better targeted. It looks like the ad-supported tier is going to be priced as low as $7 a month, um, which is less than half of Netflix's standard package without ads. And they're probably going to run, according to Bloomberg, which Netflix said, well, that's just pure speculation. Bloomberg has a pretty good track record of speculating accurately in this industry, and it assumes that, that Netflix will start with an advertising load of four minutes per hour. So seven bucks a month, four minutes per hour will be ads. And that does seem to be enough to boost Netflix's business model. According to the analytical firm Moffat Nathanson, the company, Netflix, that is, could see ad revenue ramp from $150 million next year to $1.8 billion in 2025. That's a huge jump. And it, it's no wonder that advertising is going to be the next big thing in streaming. It's just... It's just so depressing that it was always the way TV made money, and this is going to be a whole new model, and, and here we are right back at TV. But it works. Other analysts expect ads to boost Netflix's average revenue per user, ARPU. That's the golden metric of the whole industry. What's the ARPU? What's the ARPU? Well, Netflix's ARPU in the U.S.-Canada market was $15.95 in the second quarter of this year. Wells Fargo thinks that from an AVOD tier, it'll get up to $16.50 next year and surpass $20 by 2025. Cowan is even more optimistic, projecting that ARPU to get up to $17.07 next year, just right away as soon as it's introduced. 
So no wonder Netflix management is licking its chops, just dying to get this ad-supported tier started. Well, when you step back and look at the situation, you might say to yourself, it's beginning to look a lot like cable. And that's what I think. And that's what the industry thinks. I mean, the crush of streaming services with content spread all over the place looks like cable. Remember that? You used to pay a monthly price, 50, 60 bucks, whatever your plan was. And you had 200 channels to choose from. Everything from, of course, sports and science and dramas and reruns. And you, you know what it was like if, if, you're, if, if you're out of college. <laughs> and interestingly, when you add up the number of streaming services people subscribe to today... The total price paid is about the same as what people used to pay for a cable subscription. And you used to have 200 channels to choose from on cable, and now you've got maybe five to to 10 streaming services with all kinds of different content silos to choose from. What is the difference? There's not much of one, so it's beginning to look a lot like cable is what analysts are even singing on calls. When Disney acquired Marvel, the Marvel Comics Group, in 2009, and then they acquired Lucasfilm in 2012, and then 21st Century Fox, it consolidated this enormous amount of intellectual property, onto which it would add its own huge library, or I should say all that new IP came on top of Disney's own enormous library installment. So it's no wonder they started their own streaming service instead of licensing to the likes of Netflix. And that, that's really how this evolved. Netflix used to ship DVDs. They decided we're going to stream straight to people. In the beginning, they didn't have any content or even the talent to create content. And they went out and licensed everything. When those early days, the creators of different material, the movie makers, the, the, the TV show makers, all of that, they were more than happy to license because they didn't have any infrastructure or any sort of idea how to run a streaming service. Well... They caught on pretty quickly. Why should we give away all our hard-fought IP when we can run our own service and charge people and and now start advertising to people to look at the stuff that we worked so hard to create? So now everybody is forming silos. You you, you know this. In order to get Netflix stuff, you got to be a Netflix subscriber. To get HBO, you got to be on HBO. Disney, you got to be on Disney. So it's going to turn into who's making the best content. Because the material you want to see is scattered across separately priced streaming services. So you've got to switch back and forth just like the old days of subscribing to one cable service to get a slew of channels. You'll switch from Netflix to Amazon to HBO to one of those new startups, Pluto or something, back over to Paramount, that kind of thing. Instead of switching channels, you'll switch streaming services and then choose what you want to watch there. The one benefit that streaming had over cable was an absence of ads. Tick, tick, tick. Well, now that's changing, right? So with the big future of streaming being advertising to everybody, we really are right back to cable. I mean, the, the, the line between cable and streaming is a giant blur. And this is causing a big debate right now, which is who knows? Maybe cable will make a comeback now that streaming has come full circle to mimic it. It might just be that those original cable providers are the ones who are going to take the cake here. They've sure got a lot of infrastructure in place and streaming sort of painted itself into a corner of looking a lot like cable. Well, now if it's going to turn into who makes the best content, they've got their work cut out for them because it's clear what other corners they've painted themselves into. You know this. The franchise for everything is killing creativity in the motion picture business and the, the video entertainment business. 
Disney has said point blank that Star Wars installments will never end. Apparently it has the same plan with Marvel superhero films and all the other franchises that it owns. They're never going to end. Now this has been a total disaster on the creative front with recycled template driven fare on repeat forever. It bothers me and it seems to bother quite a few old school critics and old does seem to be a bit of a of a of a marker here. I'm 51. I don't think of that as old, but I think the movie business does think of it as being old. And it is true that I see so many things on repeat and it's just boring me to death. But I'm not the target audience anymore. And so even though they've got all this on repeat template, it does seem to work for the business. Less demanding audiences and these new generations that simply haven't seen the stuff before. So for them, it's not repeating. They keep paying up for this regurgitated material. I, I I think it's it's objective. It's not even subjective anymore. It is objectively true that these superhero movies are an absolute repeating plot, and it's it's comical when they say things like "final battle," and you always think, <laughs> "If only." Um, and of course, it's easier for these content shops to regurgitate old stuff than it is to truly create something original. They've come out and said, there is nothing original. Okay. Give it up. The only people that talk about original, original are these naive people that think every story is brand new. Everything has been repeating for the last 2000 years. Fine. Well, the latest installment on this front is that Amazon bought the rights to J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth and is now embarked on formalizing it rather than following Tolkien's stories. In the creative sector of life, this has people quite depressed. About the issue, Michael D.C. Drought, who is a professor of English at Wheaton College in Massachusetts, and he co-edits the journal Tolkien Studies, He's what you might call a Tolkien scholar, and he knows more about it than just about anybody. And he wrote what I found to be a touching opinion piece in the New York Times last week, titled, Please Don't Make a Tolkien Cinematic Universe. I was nodding at the title. Excerpt from his, his wonderful opinion piece, quote, There's a huge gulf between Tolkien's originality, moral sophistication, and narrative subtlety in the culture of Hollywood in 2022. The groupthink produced by the contemporary ecosystem of writers' rooms, Twitter threads, and focus groups. The writing that this dynamic is particularly good at producing, witty banter, arch references to contemporary issues, graphic and often sexualized violence, self-righteousness, is poorly suited to Middle Earth, a world with a multi-layered history that eschews both tidy morality plays and blockbuster gore. If viewers find themselves disappointed by The Rings of Power, the new Amazon series, it will probably not be because the computer-generated imagery is second-rate or there are not enough fight sequences. It will be because the new adaptation lacks the literary and moral depth that make Middle-earth not just another cinematic universe, but a world worth saving. End quote. Of course, Amazon and other purveyors of knockoff material would reply, if you prefer the books, read the books, with which I would concur. They're not removing the books from shelves. They're adding another dimension on the stories for people who prefer to get them that way. The books are not going away. But still, why can't today's writers write something new? Where are today's original creators in this mix? Why isn't there a, a, a new Indiana Jones instead of a recycled one? I'm sure that's coming. Why isn't there a new space story instead of Star Wars again and Star Trek again? 
One can't help wonder if what's good for the content business is bad for the soul of society, dumbing entertainment down to just a slack-jawed shift into park rather than something stimulating. But entertainment executives are in the revenue maximization business, not the societal soul nurturing business, so I guess we're stuck with franchises forever. All right, and now... Getting away from the business a little bit, I would like to just comment on what we really need to improve this form of entertainment. This is truly futuristic, but what audiences really need is a better recommendation engine. I've written that we live in a 4.5 star world. Have you noticed this? Everything eventually aggregates to 4.5 stars. But really, the the current review system is, is not working. We don't care what a reviewer or an aggregation of reviewers thinks of a movie or a book or a restaurant or a product, etc. We care what we will think. We're only using other opinions as a way to guess what ours will end up being. But if there were a way to simply know in advance what our review would be, we would be far better off. Imagine this, you see in a service, you will rate this film 4.9. Shangri-La. This is very rough cut these days. For example, Marudetech summarized the simplistic thinking like this, as in, this is how the current review engines work. Quote from this analytical firm, if user X likes tennis, badminton, and golf, while user Y likes tennis, badminton, and hockey, they have similar interests. So there is a high probability that X would like hockey and Y would enjoy golf. It is how collaborative filtering is done. End quote. Yeah, but not really. Highly unreliable. And this is why you are constantly recommended books and movies and restaurants and goods that end up being completely wrong for you. And nobody's doing anything wrong in this process. It's just that the review and recommendation engine is not accurate. It's not reliable in any sense of those words. If I give an honest review and, well, anyway, my suggestion has been to create an engine of reviewers rating reviewers. The idea being that I can vouch that your positive reviews match my taste, so your opinion gets overweighted in calculations for my recommendations. Just as useful would be if you and I disagree entirely, such that you become a reliable contrary indicator and your disliked material forms a body of work I'd probably like. The problem with this approach is that it requires extensive user involvement, and most people just won't invest the time to hone their personal recommendation engine network. I would. I would. It would, be, it would be totally worth it to me to review the reviewers, rate the ratings, and so on for my, my personal cloud in order to improve it as a recommendation engine. But not enough people would do it, so it wouldn't be a profitable business model, which is why we don't have it. So it's probably up to AI to understand me personally and grasp what I'm going to like, but it's nowhere close. Whoever develops it first will blow this industry wide open. The ultimate goal, I suppose, would be AI preference expertise coupled with AI creation capabilities. Now we're really getting futuristic, such that every audience member gets a customized experience, even unique shows created on the fly for only him or her. This might be decades or centuries away to get such custom silos of tailored material. If and when that happens, it would be the apotheosis of video entertainment. You could just click the on button and material created just for your brain matching your mood of the moment would begin. No searching, no disappointment, etc. 
Even the actors might not even be real people, but photorealistic creations by the AI content engine unique to your entertainment silo. As I said, this is all dreamy. It's not imminent, but it is fun to think about, and boy, would I love it. I tell you what, I would pay an awful lot to subscribe to this service. The big problem with today's entertainment complex, for me at least, is that almost everything is disappointing. And now, it seems, that disappointment will come with commercials. Thank you for listening. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast, and I'm Jason Kelly, venting with you today. I hope you can forgive me that. This is our 10th episode, so I thought I could deserve a little soapbox time. Sure hope you subscribe to the podcast from any of the links at jasonkelly.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. Also, at jasonkelly.com, you'll find links to things I mentioned in this episode. If you have a moment, please leave a review wherever you review podcasts. The only thing I'd love more than that is to welcome you to The Kelly Letter. It comes out every Sunday morning. If you subscribe today at jasonkelly.com, you'll get the onboarding materials and start your own market-beating SIG plans. If you do nothing else, please join the free list at the top right of jasonkelly.com where you can also see the current performance chart updated every week. The most honest look at how this automated price reaction is faring against the big S&P 500 over time. Hint, quite well. There's an empty field just waiting for your email address. That's it. Click enter and sign up and you're on your way. Current subscribers, thank you for doing business with me. I'll see you soon.